You might wonder, uh, what is the spiritual significance of that? It's the joy of your senior pastor. That's it. That is the only. I just wanted you to see that's the last time a Big Ten team won the national championship, so you're welcome. All right. Um, all right, let's pray and then we'll continue on in our Big Ten series. All right. Lord, we thank you uh, for the day and uh, we thank you uh, for an opportunity to study your word. And I just want to pray as we. Uh, digest this, honestly, this kind of one miracle uh, that appears in all four Gospels uh, that we would uh, derive from it uh, exactly what you want us to derive from it, and we would see exactly what you want us to see. It's the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. There's an old uh, story about a man that was passing a construction site, and there were a lot of different workers that were working, and he said to the first man, what are you doing? And he said, well, kind of annoyed that he had to stop his work. He said, I'm chipping away at stone. He walked up to another of the workers and said, what are you doing? And kind of annoyed, he said, listen, I'm building a wall. And he walked up to the third man and said, what are you doing? And the man answered, I'm building a cathedral. And it's really true, right? Different perspectives offer, uh, offer different answers to maybe the same question. The perspective of storytellers is really interesting to me. If you were to hear the perspectives of a car accident and you heard the perspective of the person that was in the accident and the perspective of a person that saw the accident, those accounts would vary. They really would, but they'd both be truthful. If you were at a wedding and you heard perspective from the bride's side, you'd hear one perspective. If you heard it from the groom's side, you'd hear another perspective. Both are correct. During the next presidential debates, if we get presidential debates, uh, at the next presidential debates, you might hear a perspective on those debates from the Republican side of it, and you might hear a perspective from the Democrat side of it, and both are wrong. So that, that's maybe not the best example, but differing accounts give us differing answers to the same question. And I want, as we get ready on the second week of this series, I want us to consider for a moment just the different perspective of the gospel writers. You've got Mark, uh, we start with Mark because he was probably, uh, it's probably the oldest of the gospel accounts. He probably came out with his first, and he was not one of the original disciples, but he traveled with Peter, uh, and uh, he, I'm sure he heard a lot of stories from Peter about the life of Jesus, and because he was so influenced by Peter, it is of no surprise to me that one of the most often used words in Mark's account of Jesus' life is immediately, right? So th there's no manger scene in Mark, right? There's no birth narrative. It is immediately. Jesus went here and did this. Immediately went there. And Peter, I, I'm probably just reading into it, but Peter's always kind of struck me as squirrely. And, and so he, when he's talking to Mark about this is what it was like to walk with Jesus, I think immediately, immediately, immediately. So that's Mark. Luke was highly educated, uh, and Luke was a doctor, and Luke set out to study and to research every aspect of Jesus' life. So you may know he wrote Luke and Acts as companion pieces to a person named Theophilus. He mentions him uh, in the book, who is most likely a Gentile living in Rome. But Luke kind of set out to make an orderly account 
a well-researched account with lots and lots of details. Matthew was one of the original 12, and he writes to Jewish Christians. So you'll see in Matthew, a lot of kind of Old Testament narratives are quoted uh, that, that uh, he wants people to understand, he wants Jews to understand who Jesus is and what he came to do. Before he was a follower of Jesus, he was a reviled tax collector, hated by his own countrymen. Uh, he seems to be a little bit influenced by Mark in some of his writings, but he really wants the Jewish people to see the Christ and to accept the Christ. And then you have John, also one of the original 12. He was in Jesus' inner circle with Peter. He refers to himself as the disciple Jesus loved, right? So he's like, you know, I got in this race with one disciple. He doesn't name himself. He says, there was this one disciple and then the disciple that Jesus loved. Those were the two that were in this race. So that's John. Repeatedly he does it. It's a little off-putting, but it's okay, right? The one Jesus loved and then the other 11 yahoos, right? Um, so he, his uh, gospel is kind of, if you want an outline of John, it's the I am statements of Jesus, he wants people to understand who Jesus was and his spiritual nature, who he is and what he came to do. And so like I said in my prayer, today we're going to look at, if you've looked at this series, if you've looked ahead at this series, it is the only miracle outside of the resurrection, we consider the resurrection a miracle, but the only miracle outside of the resurrection that is mentioned by all four gospel writers so with their varying perspectives, with their varying backgrounds, all four of them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, felt like we needed to know about this miracle. So it's important. It's a, it's a big time kind of thing as you're studying the Bible. If it's repeated, it's important. And so this is repeated again and again in the Bible. And you think about all the miracles that took place uh, the, the, the wedding feast miracle where Jesus turned water into wine, the driving out of, of demons. Um, the healing of a man born blind, all of these amazing miracles, and this is the one. Why? What is so important about this miracle? I hope by the end of this sermon, we'll be able to answer that question. I want to show you John's account of it. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is the Sea of Tiberias, and a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up on a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming toward him, he said to Philip, where shall we buy enough bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. And Philip answered him, it would take more than a half year's wages. To He's failing the test. It would take more than a half year's wages to buy enough bread for each of them to even have a single bite. Jesus, we don't have the money to do this. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here's a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish, but how far will they go amongst so many? Jesus said, have the people sit down. And there was plenty of grass in that place, and they sat down. About 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to the disciples, ta-da, no. He said, gather, <laughs> gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled 12 baskets. Lots of conversation. We're doing this series with about eight other churches. We have a Skype meeting on Tuesday mornings. Lots of conversation about what this part of the story means. Nobody has any idea, right? And I, I, we're not going to cover it, but the 12 baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten them. 
after the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, surely this is the prophet who's come into the world. Jesus, knowing they intended to come and make him a king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. So I think as we're digesting this story, the the feeding of the 5,000, I think that there are a couple kind of takes that would be correct that you could have on this story. You could view this story from the perspective of the crowds. Remember the context. Uh, Jesus, uh, some of the other gospel writers tell us, Jesus had just found out that John the Baptist had been beheaded. He loved John the Baptist. He's grieving the loss, and he just wants to isolate with his disciples. And the crowd does what crowds do. They totally disregarded that, and they followed Jesus anyway. He's clearly trying to withdraw. He walked a long distance to do this, and the crowd's like, oh, he wants to get away. Let's follow him. And the truth of the matter is crowds don't make the best decisions. I don't know if you ever noticed this. right? If you ever find yourself walking along with an angry crowd, you might want to rethink your life decisions because crowds don't make the best decisions. And we have lots and lots of examples in culture that we could point to. Crowds tend to be very very self-serving. And Matthew tells us that when Jesus sees the crowd, he's livid. No. When Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion for them. Mark tells us that the basis of this compassion is that he views them as sheep without a shepherd. And Luke tells us that when he sees the crowd, he welcomed them. So Jesus is grieving. He's had a significant loss in his life. He's trying to withdraw. The crowd totally disregards his desire. They follow him anyway. And when Jesus sees the crowd, he has compassion on them. I think that Jesus shows us a different perspective on crowds. Because when we have a crowd, it is easy to stereotype a crowd. They are all fill in the blank. And we all have a tendency to do this. Maybe it's political, and you're like, oh, you see that crowd? They're all Republicans. Or they're all, look at them, they're acting like Democrats. They're acting like Republicans. We do it politically. We do it with gender. Oh, men, or you know, women, right? We, we do it with gender. We do it economically. Oh, that's just the upper class. They always act that way. Or the middle class, or the lower. Maybe it's racial, and you were just raised with these stereotypes. Maybe it's sin-based. Oh, that crowd over there, they're all fill in the blank. But when Jesus saw a crowd, he didn't do that. He saw them, the Bible says, he saw them as sheep without a shepherd. He saw them as sheep without a shepherd. And here's my question. What if we just repented of negative crowd identity? We repented of that and we started seeing the groups of people that we hang with all throughout the week as sheep who desperately need a shepherd. That they, that they were, I'm not going to negatively stereotype. I'm just going to say, man, these are people that need Jesus. They need to follow him. They need to worship him. They need to know him. I wonder if that would change our world. If we just changed our thinking a little bit from negative stereotyping to men, people just need Jesus. So when I see a crowd doing something they shouldn't do, or I see a crowd in a behavior they shouldn't be engaging on, man, they really need Jesus. What they, need, they need Jesus. They need to follow him. They need to obey him. They need to worship him. That is, we could see it from the crowd's perspective. You could see it from the apostles' perspective. Maybe this is just me. I don't think the apostles come off the best in this story. Uh, I, I don't know about you, but they, they do not come off looking great in this story. They just want to send the crowd away to get their own food. And Jesus knew a miracle was afoot, and he's kind of testing, you know, hey, how can we provide food for these people? I'm like, Jesus, you're insane. We can't do this, right? And any time that you are starting a sentence with, Jesus, you are insane, it's probably not a great sentence to begin with. 
right? Or Jesus, we can't. Or Jesus, there's not enough. Or Jesus, it's impossible. Probably not the right attitude to approach Jesus with because he's Jesus, right? And so the disciples do not come off good at all in this story. Jesus knew a miracle was at foot, but they appear anyway to seem like this is an issue that Jesus either could not or simply would not address. And I am amazed, even as followers of Jesus, how often we fall into this trap of that I've got to solve my own problems and people need to solve their own problems. Let's not bother Jesus with fill in the blank. But Jesus doesn't really have anything to say on this or Jesus doesn't need to be involved. I'll take care of my problems. Or what we more often do is they need to handle their own problems. As we begin to debate political problems in this country, you'll see this a lot from political candidates. These are the solutions. These are the answers. Do this and all your problems will be solved. And I just wonder what would happen if we remembered that all things improve when we invite Jesus into all things. All things get better when we invite him in. And sometimes I think the disciples, I don't want to say they lucked out here, but the disciples were were beneficial that Jesus was going to do what Jesus was going to do, and he did the miracle anyway. But I think sometimes the scriptures would teach that we sometimes fail, uh, we we sometimes miss out on what Jesus is going to do by not inviting him in. Here's how James says it in James 4. You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. And here's what he says. You do not have because you do not ask God. And when you ask, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your own pleasures. So this thing you're facing, this thing you're dealing with, don't forget to bring it to Jesus. This isn't a promise that he's going to give you your heart's desire, especially if your desire is different than his will. This is, this is not a promise, but it's a challenge that God wants us to invite him into our everyday problems. God wants us to invite him in to what we're facing. So whatever the thing is on your mind as I'm talking this morning, man, there's this thing in front of me, there's this thing I'm facing, there's this thing that is bigger than I am. Don't forget, don't forget to invite Jesus in. And certainly don't become an American thinker of, I'll solve it. I'll get it. I got it done. I can handle it. It's easy. I don't even really need to ask Jesus. It's not a problem. He responds when we ask according to his will. You remember the story from Luke? Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. Bad combo, right? (laughs) I don't fear God and I don't care what you think, right? That's not good. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with a plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, he knows who he is, right? Yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that, she, that, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says. And will not God bring justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the son of man comes, will he even find faith on the earth? Now, The point of this story is not that God is the unjust judge, 
right? That doesn't make any sense because God's a God of justice. The point is that if this is how an unjust judge responds, he, he responds to the repeated pleas of his people, how much more will our just God respond according to his will and his desire? If you have kids or you have grandkids, you understand this because those little boys and girls, they are persistent in their asking. Right? When they want something, they are persistent in their asking. And sometimes you say yes because of their persistence. And you just want to watch a Michigan State game on television. <clears throat> and so you say yes to screen time, even though there's already been too much screen time in a day. You do that, right? Oh, no. No, I do that. All right. So if you, you understand persistence. You understand saying yes to persistence, but you don't do that for things that are contrary to your will or your desire for their life or things that would be bad for them. So persistence is important, but persistence does not trump will. It's like, all right, you know, I'll let you play with this thing that's terrible for you because you asked a hundred times. No, no, nobody does that. Persistence doesn't trump will. And I think there is a secondary reason why we bring why we bring what we bring to Jesus through asking. Here's what the Bible would say. We are changed by the asking. Right? This is something we miss a lot of times that in bringing the issue to Jesus, we receive hope because we're wondering how he's going to respond. When you bring something to Jesus, you walk away from that prayer with hope. Like, I wonder what he's going to do. Or we have joy knowing that he is good. We have peace and our confidence about his character. So there's a lot of debate in Christianity right now, but is God movable? Can you change God's mind? If I keep knocking and pleading and he has something he wants to do, can I talk him out of it? There's some debate about that within Christianity, and those are interesting. But I think the take-home point is that we can't control God, but we can control us. And we want to bring our problems to Jesus because he asks us to do that. We want to bring our problems to Jesus because he asks us to. He invites us to do that. And we receive when we do that. We receive joy and hope and peace. I don't know if you've ever had that experience of just bringing something to Jesus and kind of unloading it there. You walk away with a sense of peace knowing that he's got it. A sense of joy knowing that he's got it. A sense of wonder wondering what he's going to do. And those are all positive things. And so I think the disciples miss something here. Like, why even bring this to Jesus? Nothing can be done about it anyway. And Jesus is like, really? You've been walking with me for a significant amount of time. <laughs> You've seen me do stuff. I mean, that's a very loose Greek representation, but you see me do stuff, right? And yet you don't think I can handle this problem. So we want to bring, we want to bring our our. our all of our stuff to Jesus. So you could see it that perspective. You could see it with the perspective through the boy. John tells us, I think John's the only one, don't exactly quote me on this, but I think John's the only one that includes this element, that there was a boy who had five loaves and two fish, and it's such a small offering in the big scheme of life, but a small offering in the hands of Jesus is a big deal, and it makes a big impact. And I wonder if some of us in this room feel this way sometimes, that what I have to offer God is so small and so meager. And here's the, here's the term we sometimes make, should I even offer it anyway? It's so small, it's not a big deal. I'm not as gifted as maybe I, I, I want to be. And the Apostle Paul will cover with the Corinthian church that there are no small contributions in the kingdom ever 
Now, this is different than our culture will see things. Our culture will communicate that a gift is small or insignificant or less than, but we don't believe that. And the reason we don't believe that is not the size of the gift, it's the size of our God. So a small gift in the, in the hands of a big God makes a big difference. You serve a God who took a small slingshot in the hands of David and slayed a giant. He took a staff in the hands of Moses and parted the Red Sea. He took the faith, the, the small faith of a few disciples. You just read the story, right? We're talking about a small amount of faith in the hands of the disciples, and he changed the world. And he took this boy with a few fish and loaves. And he did one of the greatest miracles in human history. Please do not underestimate what God can do with what you think is a small gift. An encouraging note that you feel called to send. A dollar amount that you think is so insignificant that you feel to contribute. A meal delivered. It might feel so small to you, but God is so big and he can do amazing things with the smallest gift. So every one of the, you could see this story, right? We could do this all day long, I feel, right? There's all these different, we're, we're calm, we're not going to, but there is no football today, so we could, but. And you could do this all day long of seeing the story from all these different characters, but you know what I've been learning as I've studied this story over the years, because I'm fascinated by this story, I love this story, is that this story is about Jesus, this story is ultimately about Jesus. And I think to understand this, let me just take you for a minute back to the Old Testament. We've talked about this story quite a bit over the years, but Israel's been enslaved in Egypt and they're under a fairly brutal dictator. This dictator mistreats them and abuses them and is no good at all. The people cry out to God for their salvation, free us from this slavery, deliver us, let us go. And God sends in Moses and the plagues and the parting of the Red Sea and God's people are delivered. They leave Egypt and they enter into the desert and they begin to wander. And in the desert, there are three bad things, hot, hungry, and tired. All right, they're hot, hungry, and tired. It's a bad combo when you're kids. It's a bad combo when you, it's a bad combo. And they begin to complain. And one of the most outrageous things they say to God is, did you save us from slavery to bring us into the desert just to kill us? Was God, was that... Think about how awful of a thing this is to say. God, was this your master plan? Deliver them from slavery to bring them into the desert to kill them? We need food, God. And so God sends them this thing called manna. And they would wake up in their tents every morning and they would walk out of their tents and there'd be this manna bread laying on the ground. The people would refer to it as, what is it bread? Because they had no idea what it was. It was totally different than anything they had had. And the bread they started to view that God had sent the bread, which he had, overnight, and they said, this is our bread from heaven for our salvation. It sustained them. It satisfied them. It saved them in a very real way. They grew to complain about it <laughs> because people are going to do what people are going to do, right? <laughs> so they grew to complain about it. But at the time, it was amazing. You walk out of the tent and this bread's just laying, like God left it there, you know, Panera every morning, right? <laughs> and so this legend started amongst the Jewish people, this belief started that when the Savior comes, when the Messiah comes, he's going to replicate this specific miracle in the desert. That's how we'll know he's the true Messiah. Because a lot of people through the years claim to be the Messiah, they claim to be the Lord. They say the way we'll know 
The way we'll be for certain is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to replicate the manna in the desert. He's going to be the new Moses. And so a few thousand years later, Jesus is on the scene, and he does this miracle, and that's why you read in this text, surely this is the prophet. Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world, and they intend to make him a king by force. And immediately the rumor mill gets swirling. The miracle in the desert has been replicated. He has produced the new man. He is the new Moses. And Jesus wants to correct it. And in John, the, if you read the rest of John 6, this is Jesus correcting this mindset. The first is a rebuke. And he says, oh. He said, so you read the original miracle in the desert and you walked away from that story saying Moses did that miracle and that the Messiah will be the new Moses. And the first thing Jesus says to them is Moses didn't do that miracle. God did that miracle. God did the miracle in the desert. So he said, you're off, first of all, there. So you're, you're thinking, I'm, you're thinking I'm going to be the new Moses, and Moses didn't do the miracle to begin with. God did the miracle. But then he clarifies his position even further when he says this in John 6. I'll put it on the screen for you. Here's how he starts. I am the bread of life. So Jesus says to them, you have misunderstood things. I am not the new Moses. I'm the manna provided for your salvation. I'm preaching right now, and you're not responding. I, part, of, part of this is me. I, I spoke in an African-American church last week uh, as a guest, and so, you know, I got used to a little more interaction. But right, that's right, it's fine, right, it's fine. He says, no, you've misunderstood. I'm not the new Moses in the story. I'm the manna. I am the bread of life. So Jesus said, I did not come here to replicate a miracle I didn't come to redo a miracle. Catch this. He says, I'm not here to replicate a miracle. I'm here to be a miracle. That's what I'm here to do. I didn't come to provide some bread in the desert. I came to be the bread in your desert. And there is a difference between those two statements. So many people come to Jesus and they want him to provide something for them. And he said, I didn't come just to provide something for you. I came to provide someone for you. So every day when you walk out, the hot, out of the hot tent and life's been hard and you are beat up and you feel that you are in the desert of life, you walk out of that tent and I am the manna from heaven on the ground ready and prepared for you. I am the bread of life. Here's how Jesus says it. Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I, told her, as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. For I, look at this language. This is so beautiful. For I have come down from heaven, just like the manna did. I have come down from heaven, not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For my father's will is that everyone who looks to the son and believes in him shall have eternal life. And I will raise them up on the last day. Says, what is the will of God? 
Jesus said, why did I come down as manna from heaven? Why did I do that? The will of God is that I would not lose one. That I would not lose one of you. And so if you are here today, and this is your first time in church in forever, and you're like, God doesn't love me, God doesn't care about me, his prayer for you, for you from the beginning has been that he would not lose you. He has been on a mission for you. He is the manna come from heaven so that you could have the bread of life and be raised up on the last day and saved. He is after you like the hound of heaven. He is the hound of heaven on a a mission for you. So if you are here today and you believe he doesn't love you or he doesn't care about you, you have been misinformed. You have been misinformed. He is our manna from heaven on the ground prepared as a feast for us. Are you here today and you're hungry? He is whoever believes in him will never hunger again. Are you tired? He who comes to him will, will, will receive energy from, from the spirit and, and, and be restored. Are you in the desert? Are you in the desert? Come out of your tent. Come out of your hiding. Wherever you've been, come out of your tent and you will see the manna laid before you. He is the bread of life. Whoever comes to him will never go hungry and whoever believes in him will never be thirsty. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you. This miracle is about you. Um, And it is interesting and correct to think about, man, how can I be like this little boy who provided such a small gift and you did an amazing thing? And sometimes we make it about the gift that we, we offer And that's okay. That's okay, because that's true too. But I think this story is about the gift you've offered through your son, Jesus. And the question is not, what will you do with my gift? The question is, what will I do with yours? What will I do with the gift you have offered? Will I have faith? Will I believe? Will I worship? Will I follow? What will I, you have offered us a gift, manna from heaven in the form of your son, Jesus. And the question this morning is what will we do? What will we do? I wanna pray this morning that we would understand that your will and your desire is that none be lost that no one be lost, that everyone put their faith in Jesus. I pray that would happen. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. This story echoes this kind of moment in church history called communion that we're, we're going to remember together right now. Uh, you'll find some bread, the manna from heaven, bread representing Jesus' body, and juice representing his blood. And this is an opportunity for us to remember I think, I think it's a C.S. Lewis quote, the hound of heaven, who just keeps coming and coming and coming all right, for us, that his desire and will is that none be lost and that he came for us. He is the manna that has come from heaven. He's not the new Moses, he's the new manna. And that we wanna, we wanna accept him and we wanna engage with that and put our faith in him. And so this is an opportunity for those of us that have done that to remember how he came and how we are saved 
and how our life is different because of him. And I'll have you just hold those two cups for a few moments and just thank God for sending Jesus and for the sacrifice of his son. And then I'll come back up here in just a moment and we'll receive it together as a church family. Manna from heaven, his body given for you. His blood poured out. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. May it be so. He's been pursuing you. He's been after you. He came from heaven for you. Will you believe? Will you accept? Will you follow? Will you have faith? When the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? When the Son, let it be a yes for us that he will find faith when he returns. We stand. We're going to close with one last song. If you have a question about today, about receiving this manna from heaven, expressing faith in Jesus Christ, our elders are going to be in the overflow right over here after church, and they would love to meet with you and talk with you and pray with you and uh, talk to you a little bit more about that. If you have a question about our church family and maybe becoming a member here at Northwest, they'd love to talk to you about that as well, and they'll be in the overflow immediately after our service. God bless you guys. Uh, what a great miracle, huh? You see why it's in all four, right? I mean, I, I get why it's in all four. What, what a tremendous story. I pray that you've been encouraged by it. Let's close with one last song. Mm-hmm.